Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg. And today I'm in conversation with my friend and colleague, Tara Brock, PhD. So I guess one should say Dr. Brock. Tara has been practicing and teaching meditation since 1975, as well as leading workshops and meditation retreats at centers throughout North America and Europe. She has a PhD in clinical psychology, is the founder of the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, and is the author of several beloved books, Radical Acceptance, True Refuge, and Radical Compassion. Her most recent book, Trusting the Gold, Uncovering Your Natural Goodness, has just been released by Sounds True in June of 2021. Welcome back to the podcast, Tara. Oh, I'm so glad to be with you. And by the way, if you called me Dr. Brock, I wouldn't know who you were talking (laughs) about. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Now we know. Well, thank you really so much for being here. It's always a delight to spend time with you, even though these days it's virtual. Um, Where are you right now? Are you home? Yeah, I'm in Great Falls, Virginia, where I've pretty much been consistently for, like many people, a long time. (laughs) Yeah, it has been a long time, isn't it? Yeah, and you're in Barrie. I'm in Barrie, Massachusetts, Um, still. (laughs) It's kind of incredible. Uh, It's very funny. I'm thinking, oh... You know, in the beginning, time went kind of more normally or slowly. Now, all of a sudden, like it, it went by in a rush and it's just been a year or more. Yeah, but you haven't been up there in a consistent way. So you've actually watched the seasons in Barry now. Yeah, I have. <laughs> it's like, all right. <laughs> so congratulations yeah. on your new book, which is absolutely gorgeous. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's a little bit different of a book project. than your previous releases. It's an illustrated book. It's, I think, what in the trade is known as a gift book, and it would make a wonderful gift. And you created it with the visual artist Vicky Alvarez. So tell me how this project came to be. Yeah, yeah. So over many, many years, people would ask me for like a favorite quote or a story, a a personal story. So I started collecting the ones that I knew touched people. And of course, I had help from my little team down here. And I became increasingly aware like that there's this core theme that as presence grows, we have a, a deepening trust in who we are and really in reality. Uh, and that this trust is really the gift of the path. It lets us it lets us relax, you know, our hearts, the armoring around our hearts. And so we get to love without holding back. We get to live more spontaneously. So I initially, you know, envisioned it as a a very simple book. And usually books, you know, you start thinking them as as a certain thing, and then they grow and get Mm -hmm. to be a monstrosity. Didn't actually happen. It stayed simple. (laughs) So I'm so grateful. Yeah, like there's not these long chapters that build. It's it's really simple. And, um, you know, dedicated to helping us cultivate that trust in goodness. And 
Boy, the illustrations, um, and it is a gift book. I was so fortunate. I'm publishing with Sounds True, and they're friends, and they're great. And we were so blessed to find Vicky. And I'm just, you know, I'm just touched by the beauty of her work. It really, the images convey the spirit of the teaching. So um, I feel like we really lucked out on that. Well, you know, as, as you and I have had kind of the occasional um, email exchange and so on, I've seen like my, the second book I wrote was called The Heart is Wide as the World. And it was kind of a collection of stories. And what I discovered was that, you know, uh, I thought it was going to be much easier because it was not a succession of chapters, all of which had to build on one another. But in fact, it was quite difficult. And so I'm just praising the rigor of having that particular form. We can say simple, but, you know, as I said, you, you, it's almost like writing poetry. It's like every line, every word has to count. It has to mean something. You can't like have a bad paragraph that you're kind of tucking in there, you know, and making up for it later. Yeah. It's not easy. It's a real immersion. Each one's an immersion, like a good short story is the same way. There's an amazing art to it. And yet there was something that it was just a fresh way of being creative that, um, that I, I didn't feel hitched to some sort of a left brain logical sequence of things as much as a real deeper dive into each piece. It was just, it was fun. I enjoyed writing it. That's great. And I think the illustrations are like that as well. It's almost, almost dreamlike and yet very present and real. Yeah. You, you, you're naming it beautifully. Yeah. So let's talk about basic goodness, that controversial topic. Yeah. Um, it's something certainly that exists within the Buddhist tradition. Um, it's very different than in the West, where one might think of original sin. Um, Sokhni Rinpoche, who's uh, a Tibetan teacher, once described it um, in a class as basic okayness. You know, <laughs> I don't know if that's because he knew he was talking to and <laughs> we couldn't bring ourselves to quite get to basic goodness. So how are you defining basic goodness? Yeah. So I think of basic goodness as the awareness, the pure awareness that's really our our shared essence and that expresses, uh, it's got many flavors, but the kind of the most uh, pure direct expression of awareness is love. One of the forms of love, compassion, joy, it also, basic goodness expresses as creativity and as wisdom, as wonder, awe. So, so these are facets that the more we wake up, the more our basic goodness shines through us and the more we can see it in others. And what I found over time is I started um, talking about it as the gold, and that came from, from a story that's a true story. Many of you listening or familiar. I just love the story though, so I'll, I'll say it anyway, <laughs> which is that um, in Thailand, there was this enormous clay, clay Buddha and it, was, it wasn't was beautiful statue, but it was really loved and it had survived over centuries, you know, through oh, storms and battles and different rulers. And then there was this long dry season and some cracks appeared. So one monk took a flashlight and shined it into one of the cracks and what shined back was the the gleam uh, the flash of brilliant gold and then he checked the other cracks and turned out that under this plaster clay covering it was 
pure solid gold, one of the largest gold statues actually in Southeast Asia. And what's interesting is that the monks say that the statue was covered to protect it during tumultuous times, and historians confirm this, but it's much in the same way that we cover over our innate goodness and innocence and purity as we move through a difficult world. So we, we incarnate, and it's, there's all sorts of uh, challenges, and we, have, we develop these strategies to control things or defend or aggress or promote or whatever it is. And the suffering is that we get identified with the covering. We get identified with our, the beliefs and emotions and strategies to protect ourselves, and we forget who's looking through the mask. You know, we forget that basic goodness that tender, awake heart. So just to share with you that I was talking about this in, I've talked about this in many, many classes, but I was sharing the, the Golden Buddha story and how, you know, our essence is that, that gold and that luminosity. And of course, there's coverings. And I brought in Einstein's very well-known uh, kind of comment that the trusting the universe is basically a friendly place. You know, he just talked about the value of trusting intrinsic benevolence. And I remembered my mother was sitting in the class and I and she lived out here. So on the car ride home she challenged me. Now she was a my mom was a philosophy major at Barnard and she liked challenging me. <laughs> you know, whenever she could really. But she basically said, you know, what makes goodness more basic than badness than flaws <laughs> and sin? You know, she asked that question. And, you know, I kind of I in a, in a sense I said, it it's really a direct experience. It's like when you're resting in that goodness, you know this is home. Um, but I also explained it kind of like the metaphor of like the sun, basic goodness is always here and it does get clouded over by our fears and our protective coverings in really painful ways, but the sun is still there. It's not affected by the coverings. And what's interesting is that, well, she'd never admit this, but especially as she aged and went towards her death, she just emanated trust and basic goodness. It's like mm -hmm. always gave people the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, she saw goodness everywhere. So I think she was, she wouldn't call herself a believer, but I think she knew it. <laughs> well, that's really beautiful because one can well imagine life going the other way, you know. That's right. That's right. If she had been really fearful or felt very isolated, she could have easily believed the coverings, believed in, in separateness, and actually um, suffered a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And for so many, this idea that we're inherently valuable, it's pretty startling. So many of us were raised under the premise that we have to earn affection, we have to earn love, and that if we act in a certain way, we look a certain way, or we achieve certain things, then we're considered valuable and lovable. So this notion that we are fundamentally valuable and good as is, is a big departure from that. And do you remember when you first encountered this concept and how it affected you at the time? You know, um, first of all, I, I'm right there with you, that mm -hmm. it's one thing to hear these teachings about our true nature, you know, awake, loving, pure, and then to live with all the internalized messages that we live with, you know, that something's wrong, we should be doing it better or different. 
so so I have shared a lot and um you know it's it just I think for many of us it's the same just how much suffering especially my late teens my early 20s what I call a trance of unworthiness that I was just falling short on all fronts you know and how my body looked and my appearance and academically and relationships and so I think part of what called me to the spiritual path was a longing to feel and trust goodness that I'm okay really okay and I spent uh, a decade in a in an ashram a spiritual community and it was interesting because the message was you know your essence is divine it's light it's love it's spirit but there was also a message you have to perfect yourself to have it shine you know you purify yourself so it's like I became this type a yogi you know it's discipline striving to be more perfect but still there was that underlying belief just as you were saying that I had to do something to be okay. Mm-hmm. I had to prove myself that I was okay. And, you know, and of course, I, I did encounter some wise teachers, and I'd say to them as I was off to do that, you know, well, what else should I do to improve, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And they would mostly, the wise ones would say, just relax. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that would become my next project. Right, know? right. So there was always this undercurrent, and it really wasn't until I encountered Buddha Dharma, Buddhist practice, that it and it wasn't so much the concept, Sharon, that got me. It was the practice of becoming mindful of of stories and thoughts. Mm-hmm. So I would be watching all the stories of I'm falling short, I should be different, I need to be perfect. And realizing, because when we're mindful, we're inhabiting a larger space than the thoughts, I just don't have to believe my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And But that alone wouldn't have done it. It wouldn't be just, I don't have to believe my thoughts. I also had a sense, the pain of those thoughts, like how much pain in my heart and body came when I was believing that something was wrong with me. And so it was the self-compassion that really... Um, tenderized me and opened me. And and that's how over time, you know, over and over again, you know, seeing some one description is like climbing the ladder of perfection and instead deciding to turn and embrace this this messy world and all parts of myself. It wasn't until many rounds of befriending myself that the sense of awareness and compassion became more the truth of who I was, more the sense of home than any story. But, but it was more through the practice than some teaching that I have true nature and basic goodness. Mm-hmm. I'm having this funny memory right now listening to you, which is um, based on the idea that, you know, even if a teacher is kind of stern in a way, if this is the message they are trying to impart, sometimes it it goes in, you know, and what I'm thinking of was the time that the Dalai Lama came here to mm. the Insight Meditation Society for a visit. It was 1979, and uh, we I think it might have been his first visit to North America, and we'd heard he was coming to Amherst, Massachusetts to visit Bob Thurman, who was a professor there at the time, and we're only about 40 minutes away, so we were very young and naive, and we wrote a letter to the private office and said, Maybe he'd like to visit us too. And and lo and behold, we got a letter back saying, yes, he'll come. So that was 
a mad scramble. And uh, anyway, we had a retreat that was ongoing the day he came. And, you know, he arrived. We gave him a tour. He went bowling in our one-lane bowling alley because we <laughs> bought the place. It was, a, it was a Catholic novitiate. Had things, still has things like one-lane bowling alley. Uh, we had lunch. And then he went into the meditation hall to give her a talk. And, you know, so this retreat had been going on for about two weeks and there were all these assembled people suddenly having a talk from the Dalai Lama. And then he asked for questions and one young man raised his hand and and basically said, I can't do this. You know, I don't have the capacity to grow, to get wiser, to get more loving. It's like, it's just not in me. I'm incapable of, of really, uh, doing this path. And um, the Dalai Lama got this look on his face, which he gets sometimes when the question is like so confusing to him, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, what are you talking about? You know, like culturally or in some way it's not getting through. And he just looked at him and he said, well, you're wrong. You're just wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, people complained to me. Some people complained to me later saying as a matter of po- pedagogy, you know, you should never, say some of their wrong. And I, I thought, did it work for him? So I asked him and it worked tremendously for him. You know, that became kind of a mantra when he felt that sort of rigid discouragement and mm. I'm not capable and it's not in me and works for other people could never, ever work for me. He'd say, you're just wrong. <laughs> it's a beautiful story. And first of all, it speaks to how different uh, ways that we experience how different we are in what, you know, what we experience. But one thing that really occurs to me as you share that is that if someone really trusts in basic goodness, if they really can see it, if they really, if, if it's, if it's such a truth for them, that's contagious. And, and there's a contagion with, with the Dalai Lama. He kind of beams it. So even if he might have been, his words might have sounded like cutting in some way, his um, trust, I think, got communicated. It really got transferred. And that's a gift. That's a real transmission when that happens. I, I completely agree. And somebody once said to me, you know, just like a friend, um, do you believe in that seed? I mean, you know, we make the distinction between that capacity, that potential, and the full flowering of it, you know. Uh, but as a seed, as a potential, it's said to exist in everybody. And it doesn't matter what you've gone through, doesn't matter what your history is or what you may yet go through. It may be covered over. It may be hard to find. It may be hard to trust, but it absolutely cannot be destroyed. And so this person asked me, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? And I said, I do believe that. And he said, well, when you talk to people, is that the part of them you're talking to? Mm. And I thought, oh, that is a very good question. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. I mean, one, one uh, teacher, I don't remember who, had a teaching to never give up on anybody. And it has a, it has a similar feeling that no matter what you're conveying or communicating to hold that sense of the potential for that being to wake up, that they have that potential. We all do. It's a, it's an amazing gift. And when we see it in each other, if you and I are here talking and I can feel and sense, you know, your, 
good heartedness and in some way let you know or you can sense mine it it actually brings it forward mm-hmm. so that's the mirroring the goodness is so powerful and what do you do with the you know uh commentary that it's like being conflict avoidant or uh aren't you in a dream world you know like look at cruelty look at the world look at whatever um do you have a re- well first of all do you hear that commentary coming toward you and do you have a response to that absolutely it it comes for sure and we need to um recognize and be open to all of what's here so if you think of it like waves in an ocean yeah there's conditioned waves of uh that can be very harmful mhm and very hurtful and we need to be aware of them and know how to work with them and not to forget they're part of the ocean not to forget that they are made of the same substance of earth and stars and a lot and aliveness and awareness as everything else it's just a conditioned temporary form so it's really a both end and if we're afraid of the conditioned world we actually have a very dry and thin sense of what we're trusting in terms of the gold so it it's it's like an avoidance that doesn't actually allow us to fully fully taste and sense the gold so we really need to include it all i think there's um something about equanimity in what you just said you know being able to incorporate everything and uh it's like the yin yang symbol with the dark and the light and the light and the dark and when we sort of come down on the side of the human pettiness and cruelty and uh it's something we need to acknowledge and open to in ourselves as well and and yet if that's all that we see it's just all hopeless and if we only see kind of the brightness and the potential and we can't recognize the the genuine pain that we're just kind of floating somewhere you know or exactly or somewhere else yeah sometimes i think of it in psychological terms that either we're dissociated or overassociated and identified and equanimity actually honors and recognizes the changing flow and senses the larger field that everything belongs to what is overassociated look like identified it uh-huh. means that we're so in we're so paying attention to the waves and the reactivity and mm-hmm. what's wrong in the darkness that it it it's basically defining our identity either way we're not living in wholeness either by pushing away the challenging stuff or by just opening to the you know the oneness either way we're we're not really living in you know the form and formless flow mhm And this is such an unusual time to be releasing a book with an ongoing pandemic and um I don't know are are the things that you're doing all virtual are you doing any in-person appearances I'm completely virtual uh-huh. I, I haven't been out barely Yeah me too <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> all I can say is I'm very weird I have to tell people I said I'm really weird I know it's like how do you get your arms around your own personality when it, yeah. it's been it's been holed up for a while. <laughs> you know it's very strange so um I'm wondering if in these circumstances you know 
aside from my personal weirdness, which I share with a lot of people, I believe, um, just given conditions, if that concept of basic goodness is maybe even more relevant, do you find that? I do, um, which is part of what really motivated me to move forward on this gift book because, you know, the pandemic, it isolates and the more separate we feel, you know, we, we can forget our belonging and, and then we do fixate on personal badness. Sometimes it's just eccentric weirdness, but often it turns really negative and limiting. And so I've had so many people share, I do a, a weekly satsang gathering with inquiry and sharing and so on, sharing how much they've turned on themselves, like not liking themselves for being mm -hmm. anxious or obsessive or impatient or angry with those that they're around, you know, eating too much, not doing meaningful, whatever it is. So it's a trance of unworthiness. And it get, got really sticky, I think, during the pandemic. And so more than ever, I feel like we need reminders and practices that help us to reconnect with really who we are, help us hold ourselves with compassion and not believe the messages of the inner critic, you know, keep befriending ourselves. This is where um, the RAIN meditation, which is... Mm -hmm. You know, mindfulness and self-compassion, I know you know it, but recognize, allow, investigate, nurture. It People have said it saved my life because it just gave them, when they got caught in the stickiness of the pandemic trance, they just pause and just unpack it some to kind of reconnect with a sense of space and, and care. So that's the individual level. But I also feel like it's a crucial time on a societal level to talk about trusting basic goodness. And, and this is where, in a way, it's maybe the, you know, the most radical thing we can do because we have such a traumatized society. And I know you and I have been talking about this a lot in our different domains, but there's so much distrust and yeah. people living in utterly siloed realities and, and considering the other as the deluded one, as evil, as bad, as harmful. So, so many have shared over this last year, and you've probably encountered the same thing, that um, they they're so feel so much anger towards those with different political views. You know, the person, my sister-in-law, or my this or that at work, and it's really hard to see the goal to trust goodness in someone when we feel they're causing harm, mm -hmm. their beliefs cause harm. They become, I call it unreal other, they become the bad other because all we can see is the way their coverings are playing out. You know, the, the arrogance or the self-deception or the lack of care, it's all we can see. And it's so hard to remember that when someone's causing harm or when they have harmful thoughts, um, it comes from unprocessed fear. It comes from forgetting belonging, really, you know, from a place of separateness. And like if we imagine that person as really feeling happy and loved and peaceful, it's much easier to see the basic goodness, you know, that mm -hmm. they're, they're like us. They, if a child's hurting, they'd have the impulse to reach out. Or if it's a beautiful sunset, they'd feel wonder. So, so it's challenging. And it feels so important, Sharon, that when it's this polarized and there's this much distrust, that those that can make it a, a real intentional practice to see past the mask and to see 
see the fear and see what's behind, see the being behind there. So it's become one of my most ongoing practices because I get so caught. You know, I, I have a lot of passion around what's happening in the world. You know, mm-hmm. I care a lot. And, um, so when I lock in my, if I'm reading the news, let's say, and I, like every day this happens actually, <laughs> that, that I, in some way, you know, I, I fix, somebody is being referred to and I, I realize I've, okay, this has become the enemy in my mind. Um, I try to pause because I know I'm then just being part of the whole energies of anger and hatred. And, and if I can pause, I can find underneath my anger, there's fear, you know, my own fear. It's a powerless feeling. Other people are going to get hurt. More hurt's going to happen. And then underneath that, I can feel the sorrow and the grief about that. Mm-hmm. And if I keep staying, you know, then I come down to this place of just caring, you know. And if I, if I can come back to that, to the kind of more pure, the gold within me, I can see others more truly that they're living from their covering they're imprisoned by you know energies that really live through all of us and i can remember our belonging so it does feel like a training and it has to be kind of a purposeful one because i think it's very hard to be in our current world and not have uh the intensity of what's happening drive us into camps mm-hmm. and have that identity really prevent us from doing the thing we have to do, which is we have to remember we belong together. When we have to find a way to collaborate and work together to Mm -hmm. do some healing. So anyway, I'm interested in your how that is for you because it seems so so dramatic right now. Yeah, I mean uh first I wondered if you wanted to go through in just a slightly uh, more detailed form, the RAIN exercise, because maybe not everyone is so familiar with it. And what came to my mind was, um, you know, like you doing so much teaching in this period, I've, I've also seen the waves of, while everyone is different, there are some communal collective experiences that seem to happen. Like, we went through, you know, tremendous anxiety and then grief and loss and anger and, you know, exhaustion and now languishing to quote Adam Grant. And, mm-hmm. and something that I have been hearing a lot more lately, I, you know, for a wa- long time, I heard just what you're describing. I'm so filled with anger. I can't believe my mind. I'm, I can't stand this toxicity anymore. I just think of these politicians and I'm filled with hatred and more what I'm hearing now. Uh, is um, my sister-in-law, to to use your example, you know, my sister-in-law said these vile things about me on Facebook. Mm. And people are experiencing themselves as the recipient of othering and, you know, not as would always perhaps have been the case because of race or uh, gender identification, but just because of political belief. Um, and not only political, you know, wearing masks, taking vaccines, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And, mm-hmm. and so people are also struggling with how do I deal with the energy coming at me? You know, that's, that's so painful and so rancorous. Yeah, yeah. I definitely um, am hearing that same thing, that 
it's really it's war you know it's like yeah. um it's like in the um what was it called? the documentary the social dilemma the mm-hmm. one one kind of the key point was somebody said civil war it's like it's really painful and it's coming in all directions so it's not only me judging that person it's it's feeling really condemned and and the the, the venom of it um very very painful so if we just walked through rain in relationship to that mm-hmm. if as you're listening whoever you know has a sense of where they're either feeling judged or judging and it's got a lot of pain to it there you know your your feeling of of anger or hatred or distrust towards another or feeling really wounded and threatened by someone then the r of rain is to recognize the most predominant experience you're having inside you. So it may be that you're recognizing anger, you're recognizing hurt, or you're recognizing fear. But just to mentally whisper it, it really helps to just name it. And then the A of rain, allow, means let it be there, not to try to fix it or get away, just allow it to be there for now. And I sometimes actually say this belongs because it's like a wave in the ocean. It's here right now. You know, it's an acknowledgement of reality. And then the eye of rain investigate. It's not conceptual investigation. It's actually a deepening inquiry into what's this like in my body? How is this experience? So if let's say it's anger, as I described coming up or a feeling of, uh, wounded by another person hurt, then the eye of rain is to sense, okay, what's this like in my body right now? Where am I feeling it? Is my throat, my chest, my belly? And I often encourage people during investigating just to put their hand, you know, maybe on their heart, because it actually helps to stabilize the attention as we're investigating and brings in the beginning of nurturing, which is the end of rain. And it accompanies, we feel a sense of being accompanied. So then just to investigate what it's like. And part of investigating is to sense perhaps what this vulnerable part needs. You know, how does it want me to be with it? You know, how do, what does it most need right now? So that's investigate. And then nurture is where we actively uh, bring compassion to the place that's struggling, to the hurt place or the fearful place. And it could be compassion from our own, you know, more awake heart, or it could be imagining and sensing compassion coming from another source. It doesn't matter. It's just nurturing, letting in nurturing. And then the way the practice ends, the way I teach it is what I call after the rain, which which really means that we stop any doing. And there's just a noticing of the quality of presence that's emerged. And, and a sense of the shift from maybe at the beginning when we were identified with a hurt self or a fearful self to really sensing this more of a, a space of awakeness or kindness or tenderness. Because it's during after the rain that we really come home to who we are. Um, we're not doing anything. We're just resting in that presence. So that's a slowed down version. I hope it wasn't too slowed down. No, no, it was great. Uh, I, it was, I was just feeling into like all these people saying, "What, what, how do you do it?" You know, like I wanted to know how to do it. So that was great. 
Yeah, it helps a lot. And rain's one of those things that, you know, when we get triggered, that's when we can least remember how to find our way back to mindfulness and kindfulness. It's it's when we're most, you know, hijacked by our limbic system. So it helps ahead of time to have like a sequence of steps and they're not inviolable, you know, we, mm-hmm. everything is organic and we have to shift things around, but they can kind of guide us back home. So it does help like that. And you can do it in you know, 30 seconds, or you can do it in 30 minutes, depending on how deep you want to go. Fabulous. Thank you. So I was also impressed with the fact that you read the news every day, which I do not. Uh, You know, it's a part of the way I deal with um, situations, you know, in, in our current climate is I have different boundaries than I used to have. Um, because I, I feel very connected as you do and passionate about things happening in the world. And I care a lot. And, um, and uh, I think it was you actually who recommended me to a um, New York times journalist who was doing an article on doom scrolling. Mm, mm-hmm. And, and uh, I didn't even know what the word meant, you know, when I was talking to him and, and he explained that it's doom scrolling. You know, you pick up your device, for example, and you just keep reading and reading and reading and reading mm-hmm. some desperately terrible <laughs> situation, you know. And the irony of it is that it's basically the same story again and again and again and again. And I, you know, as he was explaining it, I thought, oh, I do that, you know. And it takes a really conscious effort to realize that's too much. Um, And what I've realized in my practice is that, uh, just as it says in the teachings, one of the kernels of anger or rage is a sense of helplessness. And uh, this is not about a problem of feeling anger, because as you say, we feel what we feel. That's just how it is. But when we are overcome by things like anger, and it's chronic, and it's you know, becomes resentment and and it's taken over our lives. That's not a good state and it's very self-destructive. And so if I sit with the anger as one does in mindfulness and sees the layers, you know, the sadness, the fear, whatever else may be there, I virtually always come to a sense of helplessness that's right at the core of it. And when I get there, I know that I need to channel some of that energy and do something, even if it feels like most meager act, you know, it's not going to make the world the perfect place by any means, but it's reaching out to one person or it's um, doing something, even if it seems very small. And, and that's basically how I deal with it. Um, You know, in the beginning of the pandemic, there was also, um, because nobody knew how long those of us who've been more in isolation would be in isolation. I came up to Barry, honestly, thinking it was going to be for two weeks yeah. <laughs> in March of 2020, yeah. um, you know, and uh, it's been so much in mm. in these months, in, in more than a year, and realizing that even in these very constrained and odd circumstances, people are finding a way to do that one small action to help one another. and and um, whether it's, you know, reaching out to a neighbor or or something like that. And it makes a big difference because you're not just 
kind of drowning in that energy, but you're actually utilizing it in some way. And, and that's been very important. Anyway, so I had this whole conversation with the journalist about doom scrolling. And then when the article came out, I noticed you were not in there and I was in there. And then I thought, I wonder if she recommended me because she doesn't do it and I do it and she knows I do it. And is that how I ended up in the New York Times? (laughs) That's so funny. No, actually, it had nothing to do with that. It was just that I I was too busy and Mm -hmm. being like a good person. But I want to say I I love what you're naming. Um, Two two different things I want to comment on because I'm really taking it in, Sharon. And one is that there's no question that when we feel trapped and powerless, that the healing is in um, taking some action in some way. And that's really true for healing trauma, that the healing for trauma is powerlessness. If we can just in some way act, we start recollecting and re-arriving where we have some resources. And it actually helps the world. So just like you say, it could be a kind email to someone, or it could be that we donate something, or it could be helping out a friend. It doesn't matter, just acting. And and the other piece is we have to have a, a news diet. And when I say, I don't read the news every day, I usually listen each day to certain podcasts, but I've learned not to listen to some podcasts that I might agree with the views, but are just going to hype me up. Mm-hmm. So it's more things that um, I vary it to where there's interest and so on. But it's very easy for someone in my world or circles or on email to send something that that triggers off that sense of unreal other and bad mm-hmm. other. So that's when I try to pause and undo that. But I'm really with you that um, in general, learning how to get offline for chunks of time saves our mm-hmm. soul. <laughs> And especially the the kind of fire hose of news, which is meant to aggravate and and you know get us really upset. That's fantastic. I wonder if um, you can speak a little bit about something that uh, is in your book about the second arrow and resisting demons, which may be relevant here. <laughs> Yeah, well, again, we're in such a, you know, stressful time for so many that there's all sorts of super difficult emotions that come up. And when they come up, that's considered the first arrow would be the whatever pain arises. But the second arrow that the Buddha described is where we then add on, I'm bad, it's my fault, this shouldn't be, you know, in other words, we add on more blame. And, well, just by way of example, this morning, I was working with someone who went through a a period at work of, of real emotional abuse and fear and hurt. And so she was miserable. And the second arrow is, I'm weak for having, getting so caught in these reactive feelings. Like something's really wrong with me that I'm reacting this way. And if we can just realize we're shooting the second arrow, that things are hard, and then we're adding on, and it's my fault, I'm bad, that's part of waking up out of the trance. Uh, And the second piece is when something comes up, the most direct pathway to freeing ourselves 
Because blame, blame is a way of resisting, actually. If I blame myself, I'm not actually feeling the raw feeling. I'm now blaming myself. I'm second arrowing. Is to open directly without any uh, pushing away, without numbing ourselves, distracting ourselves to really what's there. And I share a story that's very, very well known, and I just love it, is of uh, the Tibetan yogi Milarepa. Because he spent he spent years in a mountain cave, and so he's regularly visited by all the demons of his mind, and they actually appear as real demons. And when they appear, he sings out, you know, it's wonderful you came today. You should come mm-hmm. again tomorrow. We should converse. You know, he invites them to tea. Well, so he learns over the years that basically to experience freedom, to really trust reality, uh, we need to directly open to the demons wakefully just as they are and in one story this is the kind of peak of the drama for him the the cave fills with demons and he brings a full presence to them but they and they all vanish but one one that's really like a core difficult place you know and he makes this move where he puts his head in the demon's mouth and it it was that level Mm -hmm. of surrender when that demon disappeared and all that remained was the brilliance of pure awareness, basic goodness. So the, te- the reason I love this, because the teaching is simply when resistance is gone, the demons are gone. And, and for this woman I mentioned this, that I just talked to this morning, when she reconnected to that time, it was a couple of years ago, of real emotional pain that she was still carrying the blame for, and just instead, just open to how hard it was then, you know, what she, what that place in her, that vulnerable place was feeling without any resistance. Um, there was this natural self-compassion that arose because when we opened to suffering without saying, oh, others have it worse or I deserved it, but just feel, ouch, this hurts. Then compassion arises. And then we sense as we open to that compassion that that's what we are. That this is home. No resistance, no demons. So I, I just, I, I love that phrase when the resistance is gone, the demons are gone, because it's so true. It's beautiful. Um, I'm sorry that we have to stop talking. It's, it's just been wonderful. I mean, maybe um, just one last question, and then uh, I can ask you to lead us into meditation, because this is a time, you know, certainly many people have lived uh, working every day in this last year and more and um, performing all those essential services, and they are essential, um, or lived in extended family situations. Uh, others, you know, quite, quite isolated. And I remember I'm teaching online because I read the chats. I'm like an inveterate chat reader and, you know, people writing in things about their loneliness and about Somebody wrote and said, I'm a resident in a nursing home. I haven't had a visitor in a year. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, even, you know, people who have felt very, very connected online or through other other Mm -hmm. means, you know, it's uh, in general, it's another step that's happening now or soon as as many people emerge back into a, a more social kind of situation. And when I say I'm weird, I really think I'm weird, you know, like I had a pot of one really, which was Joseph Goldstein, who then went on intensive retreat. 
you know, so it was like, bye, Joseph, you know? Um, and, uh, and yet, you know, uh, I've been very connected through electronic means and so on. And, and yet now, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to leave this property and, you know, do things and be with other people. And uh, it's kind of strange. I wonder if you have any advice for people like me. Well, it's for me too. I mean, introverts, you know, secretly delighted in the excuse to not have to go out and do much hanging out. (laughs) So, and not have to get dressed the lower half of our body. So it's been really, you know, there's been a lot of, um, yeah. So it is a deal. It's really a strange, unusual thing to get, you know, go from our withdrawal and back into in-person contact. So one of the things, and what, what I really get is um, it's like everything gets magnified. It can be really a self-conscious thing that um, are, it's like you, I think you mentioned this, you know, coming out yeah. of a retreat. It's like the personality all of a sudden springs forth again and we get to see how we act around others and the habitual ways we stand or hug or move or whatever it is. It's all, and it's all magnified. And and insecurity is magnified. So one of the things I've been really reflecting on, Sharon, is the good news is because we haven't been in our old habit patterns, it's actually a chance to see fresh, you know, what's happening, how we relate and be really curious. I mean, it really helps to be curious and you have a really curious mind. So just to bring that in, it's like, okay, so how does this personality do itself and what serves and what what creates distance and what creates connection I and mean, that's always like a really powerful question you know what helps to create more understanding what ways do i defend and then the other piece is you know to be this the kindness that we're all in the same boat i mean introverts extroverts it's like we're all insecure everybody you know everybody wants to connect on some level everybody has a fear of being hurt on an on another level so somehow rather just keep saying just like me this person's feeling Mm -hmm. you know even though they have their Mm -hmm. own version and i guess the thing that most hits me uh, maybe this is the right part of the ending of our of this conversation is that you know this pandemic it's not like it's Mm -hmm. over we this is like shaking the ground of our sense of what's how our lives are going to be really we don't know how much contact and how free and flowing and so on so it really brings impermanence right to right to the fore of you know who knows how long how much we'll get to see this mm-hmm. person or how often or you know there are some people we haven't seen for so long we never thought that was going to happen what how would we have been with that person if we knew it's like if you were at the end of your life looking back, how would you be with these people? And I think it gives us a chance to deepen our aspiration in a real living way towards being real and open-hearted uh, with each other. So it's actually an uncomfortable and good opportunity for loving more. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much. So do you want to lead us in a meditation? I would be delighted. I'd be delighted. And so wherever you are to uh, 
make any adjustments so that you've got a posture that feels relaxed, that you're awake and at ease. You may take a few full breaths as a way to collect, gather attention. In a way, this meditation's in the spirit of the word namaste, where we just explore what it really means to honor the intrinsic goodness in each of us. And a simple way to start that we often do with the loving-kindness practice is to, to begin with someone who is easy, where the, the caring flows easily, and um, just bring them to mind. So it's not a complicated relationship. And when you bring this being to mind, let it be close in so you can actually imagine and sense how they look when they're happy, a very kind of a pure happiness. When they're entertained, humored by something. How, how they're like, what they look like when they're looking at you with, with love and care. Just sense what you appreciate. Sense the qualities of, of heart and awareness that you appreciate. What lights you up about this person. You might even, as you're sensing it, just mentally whisper, thank you. And you might imagine in some way letting them know what you love. Just imagine being with that person and in some way letting them know their goodness. And what it's like for them to hear that. And the quality of connection that wakes up in that mirroring and that sharing. And then bringing attention to your own heart right now and just notice what you notice, the glow, the tenderness, the goodness of caring. How your own being is when you're feeling belonging and love. In some way, it might be that you put your hand on your heart, just send a message of appreciation inwardly for your own goodness, as if you could in some way bow namaste to the spirit that's living in you. And if that's at all difficult, just to look through the eyes of a loved one to see that goodness. And you might widen the circles, bringing to mind someone that you don't know as well, 
someone you perhaps encounter regularly enough. Not difficult, but not someone you know well. And bring them close in. And again, imagine, as you did before, what, how they look if they're happy in a very pure way. Entertained, humored. When they feel that they're loved. You might imagine what's meaningful to them. Like what matters to this person. and what they love. And sensing how, like you, they want to love and be loved, that that matters, and they want to be all they can be. I invite you to keep widening a bit and bring to mind a non-human animal. Could be your own dog or cat or Just an animal you know, that you appreciate. And sense the life force and sentience there. That same aliveness and light that connects us all, that lives through us all. Again, sensing that namaste, just honoring that. You might continue to extend by sensing a tree or a plant near you, outside. And again, that same life force, that universal consciousness living through these different forms. Namaste and namaste. Feeling the sacredness of aliveness of life that lives through us all. In closing, by feeling your, your heart's aspiration to remember goodness. To be a mirror of goodness. To express goodness, loving awareness, to live from that in your moments. Thank you so much, Tara, for that beautiful meditation and for all of your work. And thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, my gosh, Sharon, we could I know, go on and, and on. Someday we must. Total pleasure. <laughs> we really must. <laughs> we will do it again. And yeah. to learn more about Tara's work and ongoing teaching schedule, you can visit her website at www.tarabrach.com. And I highly recommend getting yourself a copy of her brand new book, Trusting the Gold, available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats wherever books are sold. Big thank you to all who are listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, 
as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.